Robert Traver was a fisherman and a writer. He wrote this, I fish because I love to, because I love the environs where trout are found, which are invariably beautiful. And I hate the environs where crowds of people are found, which are invariably ugly. Because of all the television commercials, cocktail parties, and assorted social posturing, I thus escape. I fish because in a world where most men seem to spend their lives doing what they hate, my fishing is at once an endless source of delight and an act of small rebellion. Because trout do not lie or cheat and can't be bought or bribed or impressed by power, but respond only to quietude and humility and endless patience. Because I suspect that men are going this way for the last time. And I, for one, don't want to waste my trip. Because mercifully, there are no telephones on trout waters because in the woods I can find solitude without loneliness. And finally, not because I regard fishing as being so terribly important, but because I suspect that many of the other concerns of men are equally unimportant and not nearly as much fun. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, is he really talking about fishing right now? I am because we all have our tree stands, don't we? We all have our turkey blinds, don't we? We all have our trout streams, don't we? Places where we seek solitude, where we seek peace, because in our hearts we have a longing for peace. Jerry Dennis is a Michigan writer and a fisherman. Can I, can I tell you one more fishing thing? Okay. Why fish, he says, because it teaches us to perform small acts with care, because it humbles us because it enriches our friendships, because it cultivates reverence for wild things and beautiful places. And it reminds us that the time, time needs occasionally to be squandered. And it offers relief from endless chores and appalling world events. It makes us participants in nature instead of just spectators. So there's a phrase that landed on my heart when I first read that, even though I don't spend much time fishing anymore. He said he fishes because it offers relief from appalling world events. Did anybody here could use some relief from appalling world events? It's, uh, I have a, a, a nephew, his son has, I follow his Instagram feed, he bought a wooden canoe this weekend, a beautiful wooden canoe. He lives up in the Boundary Waters. I'm just looking forward to watching his Instagram feed to see where he takes that beautiful wooden canoe. How our hearts all long for peace. We have that within all of us. All of us have that longing for peace, that craving for order. And, and how, how painful is it for our souls to see such injustice and such turmoil in the world? and to absorb such turmoil and difficulty and heartache and acrimony and fighting and feuding and even to experience that. We all have this longing for peace. And we're going we're to talk about that today because that's what the text, is. this great text of the Bible, which is coming, bringing the Bible to its climactic ending, is talking in the most profound ways about a time of incredible peace on earth. Even when we look all around us and we see sharp divisions and, you know, the COVID thing has threatened to divide every church, hasn't it? We haven't talked much about it because it's so sensitive. It's, it's, it's divided the best of friends. It's divided couples. It's divided even people in churches. It's just the, there's just that division thing. Even, even talk about it 
just introduces a little bit of tension in, into the room, doesn't it? And, and then, of course, around the world, you see that, you know, nations and, uh, are in the sharpest division, even to the point of shedding blood right now at this moment. In the Middle East, blood is being shed, division, heartache, fighting, and people long for peace. Now, Revelation 20 is really a couple of sections here, if you will, two or three, but we read, Carol read for us verses one through six. And, and verses one through six are the clearest and most literal and precise description of what we call the millennial reign of Christ, the 1,000-year rule of Jesus Christ on the earth. And, and we believe this to be a literal 1,000-year period of time when Jesus will literally and physically rule on the earth. Can you imagine this? Sometimes we talk about things in church that we don't really stop and allow the emotional impact of them to land on our heart that Jesus Christ is going to come to this earth physically and rule. He's going to reign. He's going to be in, in charge for a thousand years before the introduction of what theologians sometimes call the eternal state or the ultimate universe is what we're calling our series of messages based on chapter 20, uh, 21 and 22 of Revelation. So what you have here is at, at once thrilling and chilling because the second time, the second section of this, the section, obviously Satan is going to be cast initially into the abyss and then a thousand years later into the eternal lake of fire. And we've already, he's already dealt with the, the first two members of that demonic trinity, you know, the, the, the beast and the false prophet in chapter 19. In chapter 20, he's going to deal with Satan. He's going to put him in the abyss, going to have probably Michael, the archangel, or a powerful angel, but it isn't really named, put him in the abyss, a temporary kind of holding place, if you will. And then eventually, before this chapter is over, he's going to be thrown into the eternal lake of fire. And then there's going to be a great judgment on earth. We're getting ahead of ourselves because that's really what we're going to talk about next week. If the Lord doesn't come back first, um, that's what we'll talk about next week. If he comes back, maybe somebody else will talk about it a lot better than I could do it. But, but that's what you have in, in chapter 20. You have clearly and repeatedly, a clearly and repeatedly predicted promise of the Old Testament. Repeated scores of times in the Old Testament that Jesus promised his people, in particular the Jewish people, that he would come and he would rule from David's throne on earth literally for a thousand years. Now, what I'm going to get at today in terms of a practical application, I want to give you a little hint so that you stay with me on this. And that is, every one of us have had the experience of personal angst, personal turmoil, lack of peace, people that fuss in our lives. We have, like maybe, maybe some of you, many, many, right, struggle with personal anxiety, personal fear, personally, even inexplicably in your soul, you can't even sometimes get a handle on why. And probably all of us have had the experience of just hearing people fighting in the next room. And that's very upsetting. That's a very troubling thing. Turning on the news and just seeing people are fussing, people are fighting, people are arguing. And maybe we've had the personal experience of that. Well, 
here's what I'm getting at in terms of personal, practical application this week, and that is if God so many times, scores of times throughout the Old Testament reminded his beloved people that he was going to come and he was going to bring with him a great time, a thousand years of peace on earth, and after that, the eternal state. God wanted that idea embedded in the hearts of people who are wrestling to experience this peace and, and to overcome personal worry, fear, anxiety. In other words, are you tracking with me? If, if, if the Bible is true, and it is, and the promises of the Bible are true, and they are, and God is promising us, look, you know, you, you're going to have trouble right now. But there's going to there's gonna be a time of peace coming. I promise I'm going to come and bring it. Your future is bright. There's going to be peace forever in your future. Doesn't it just help us deal with what we're dealing with a little bit more? I think so. So this is what we're doing here. This is, I think this is one of the reasons this is here. So God's people would know what God is up to. And he says... I'm going to eventually conquer all the bad people, all the enemies. I'm going to make some of the enemies my own friends. And those that continually resist and rebel against me, I will overcome them. And I will bring peace to the earth. Here are, here are a couple of Old Testament promises. And there are scores of them, maybe even hundreds. There are many Old Testament promises about this. But the book of Isaiah is full of them. Isaiah 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that, we, that, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. The very idea of it. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and shall beat their, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn more anymore. No more rockets firing into nations. No more rockets firing back. No more bloodshed. No more weeping children in the streets. No more fear at night. Isaiah 11 Three through six is another example of the many examples you can find them all throughout the Old Testament. And his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. Listen. The wolf will dwell with a lamb, and the leopard will lie down with a young goat, and the calf and lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. You ought to sit where I do on Sunday morning and listen to the children singing. There's something about hearing children singing. I was with my grandson. Can I talk about my grandson? You can talk to me about your grandson. You can't right now, but... Please buy me coffee. Tell me all about him. He was really little, and, and I said to him, look at this pretty flower. It was a pink carnation. And I said, hey, come on, look at this pretty flower. He looked at it. He held it. I said, this smells pretty, too. Smell it. He smelled it. It was so cute. I, I got distracted. I looked away. You know what he did, right? Yeah, he bit it. I looked back, and he was chewing it. I was like, smells good, looks good, probably tastes good. 
kids do stuff like that. Can you see a little boy playing on the hole of a snake? I can see that. That would be a very dangerous thing to do right now. It, 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 there will come a time when God lifts the curse from the earth and a little child will be able to play with what was once a dangerous animal. That's why one of the reasons why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's repeated, that little chorus in, in one form or another, in one phrase or another, is repeated all throughout the New Testament. You can find it in all the epistles. When heaven and earth are one, when heaven and earth are one, when heaven comes to earth, when, when earth receives heaven, this is the great hope that God wants in every one of our souls while we're getting ready for that big math test this week. One day, after the math tests are all over, and there will be no math test in heaven, I guarantee it, I, I think. Uh, after, or else we'll be really smart. We'll be really smart and we'll be able to like, we'll be able to pass math tests. That'd be like the first time in my life that ever happened. Um, that would be, would be great. So, so you, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, why don't we look at the text? That's a great idea. Let's do that. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Chapter 20, let's read it again. Carol read it for us. But then I saw the angel that came down from heaven. And he's holding the key the, in his hand, the key to the bottomless pit. And <laughs> great change. This is a bottomless pit, the abyss, temporary place. He sees the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. It is decoded in the book itself. He sees the dragon. And it also is decoded right here, by the way. It says, he's the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. Say, God is in control. Say that. God is in control. Believe that. God is in control. So he threw him in a pit, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Do you ever think about that? Like, what? Why? Why? <laughs> Who was it? Uh, one of the theologians, I think, at Dallas, maybe... Lewis Perry Chafer, yeah, that's who it was. They asked him one day, why, is Satan, why was Satan released for a thousand years? And Lewis Perry Chafer quickly answered, if you tell me why he was created in the first place, I will tell you why he was released. <laughs> it, it, there are a lot of answers, and, and students of the Bible and of the heart of God, people who want to know the ways of God should lean into these things. But I will tell you this one thing, everything that God does or allows for his glory and for our good, this we must trust him with. That God is going to display his glory in whatever evil happens. And he's going to, we'll, we'll one day land on our feet. And this is, the, this is where this great climax of the scripture is coming to its climax to show us that, how that's going to happen and how that will happen. And that's why he taught us, he taught them to say, seek first the kingdom of God in his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So there are two things here. You can see the first one is that Satan will be bound for a thousand years. He'll be withheld from his influence on earth in this 1,000 year period of time. Can you imagine if, if we had a soundtrack to this, a great cheer would have gone up right there. It's a great cheer, like nothing you've ever heard. You talk about, you know, scoring a touchdown brings a young man glory or young woman glory because of what they did. That, and, and the crowd cheers because they, what an amazing feat. What, look at that high jump. Look how fast that girl ran. Look how strong that man is. And we cheer. But when God does these things in cosmic scale, can you imagine how our hearts would be lifted up with great praise to him? He's in charge. He's going to throw 
bind Satan for a thousand years. Now in chapter 19 and verse 20, he already through the beast in the lake of fire, the false prophet, chapter 19 and verse 20, in the lake of fire, the dragon, chapter 20 and verse 2, Satan, who's a serpent, the devil, or the accuser, our adversary, the one who always wants to bring up the bad against us, the prosecuting eternity, attorney of all eternity, he's going to be thrown into this abyss. God has even worse plans for him later, but he is going to allow him a, a time where he's released. Did you read Robinson Crusoe? And you remember that he runs into the native, he calls him Friday because he met him on Friday. Um, creative guy, wasn't he? And, uh, he and, and he tells him about Christianity. Remember this part? It's kind of interesting. And then Friday looks at him and says, why God not kill devil now? Which is a great question. Why God not kill devil now? And, and I, you know, like, I'm not sure the total answer to that, but I know one answer would be this. Well, where do you see what it's like when he does? Great glory to God. Great peace on earth. Great gratitude among God's people. Great worship to God. So first, in verses 1 through 3, we see that Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And then we see, in the second section of these verses, 1 through 6, we see the saints will rule with Christ on earth for a thousand years years. Great cheer goes up from the crowd. The saints will rule on earth for a thousand years. I, I think that's cool because I'm not that good at running things. And I am going to have more ability to run things than I, than I do now. I, I'm, I'm limited in what I can do. I feel the limitations of that. I'm always looking for uh, can other people that can do this or that. Are you this way? I can't really do that. Who could, who could I find? Who could I inspire to do that? Um, and, and yet, we, we're, we're going to be given opportunity to, to administer God's rule on earth. The saints will rule with Christ on earth. The scriptures teach there are four different groups that will be involved in this rule. The Old Testament saints, the promise is in Daniel in chapter 7, that the saints, Old Testament saints, will rule. Here's what it says in Daniel 7, 27. Kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. The apostles are promised that they will rule on earth with Christ. In chapter 19 of Matthew, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Bible teaches this too, in more than one place, that the saints, that New Testament saints, the church, will also return to earth to rule with Christ, it, as one example would be 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If, but if we deny him, he will deny us. And then, of course, the tribulation saints, and this is what's re, what it's referring to here in verse 4. Then I saw, they'll also help rule with Christ on earth during the 1,000 your reign, and this is the, one of the texts for that, chapter 20 and verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life. There's a resurrection there. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
And now we're getting into a very enigmatic, mysterious, interesting, kind of detailed thing about the Bible, and that is the different resurrections of the Bible and the different judgments of the Bible. If you think who is being judged, you see different groups are being judged. You see they're at different times. And the results of the judgment are, are different and, and, the, and the, 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 what's being judged is different. You can study the Bible carefully, and you can see the different judgments and resurrections of the Bible. And we'll be doing some teaching on this next week and the week after that. But study the resurrections of the Bible, how they're like, how they're different. There are two great categories of resurrections, the resurrection of the life the resurrections of death are great categories of resurrections, but then there are specific resurrections that are embedded in chronological in d- detail. They're, they're explained when they're going to be and who they're going to involve and what the basis of the judgment is. Verse 5 says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That's another blessed of revelation. How many of them are there? Just guess, good guess, seven. You said, you sucked me in before on that. I'm not going to talk in church. That's what Lois says, never ask them to talk. She's, she's not here today. So I'm like, I didn't even have to wear a jacket today. Anyway, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. They will be priest of God and of Christ, and they will reign on him, with him for a thousand years. Is he worthy? He is. And that's sweet. So there you have it, the resurrection of the Bible, the judgments of the Bible, a hint about them. More detail later. I talked to a man once who said he was plagued with insecurity, especially when he was young. And he was troubled, very troubled. And as he thought about it, he, he said, I want to blame my mom and dad for everything. But he said, it feels to me like it goes back to the voices that I heard in the night. I would go to bed and I would listen to my parents argue. And it really bothered me. It really bothered me to hear my parents argue. It really troubled my soul. I think, I love my mom and dad, but it it made me feel insecure, he said. And and he tied some really serious grown-up difficulties back to that being raised in an atmosphere where there is that emotion, you know, and, and scientists call this, you know, behavioral scientists and psychologists call this emotional noise. Anybody in the house had any emotional noise in their life ever? I mean, we don't want to pick on mom and dad here or other people, but like, I know you didn't raise your hand because of the pain of the question. We, we probably all have a little emotional noise and, and it affects us in a, in a not very good way. And here's what I want to suggest. This is why God wrote the story the way he wrote the story. It's because he says, I don't care how much emotional, the, your, the turmoil is real, but the turmoil for a believer is temporary. It's not terminal. It's going to be over someday. I'm coming to earth myself. I'm going to see to it that gets done. And the greatest enemies of that turmoil, they, I'm going I'm to take care of that business. That's just so beautiful, isn't it? You struggle with anxiety. You struggle with worry. You struggle with depression. Do You struggle with fear. Many, many people do. God knew that you would. And he cares about you a lot. And he's made some provisions to see to it that's not going to be terminal. 
That's not going to be forever. And doesn't that put a little bit of hope in your sails? Doesn't it? Does me. I, I know. I wish I could get along with everybody. I got to tell you, there are some people in my life that I don't know in this lifetime if I will ever be able to reconcile with them. <laughs> had lunch with my, two of my grandchildren yesterday. And my little granddaughter looked at me like we're just having a good day, just taking a walk and going to the lake, going to the library. My love language is books. And it's like we're always going to the library, bookstore stuff. Then lunch. And we ate lunch and she was just being playful. And then she just stopped and her eyes looked right in my eyes. And she asked me a question that really had to do with, am I ever going to reconcile with her daddy? What did my daddy do to hurt you? But she said, I'm like, well, I love your daddy. Someday, maybe we'll all be at the same table and we'll all eat together and we'll tell stories and we'll laugh. Someday, God will put us all back together if we trust the Lord. That's what I want. So I don't know what, how, what pain you've dealt with, what separation you've experienced, what hurts that you've had, but God knows. And he's coming back to earth to straighten the whole mess out someday. And you get, you get right with him, and he will put everything right in the world. This is what he's promising to us. How sweet is that? How beautiful is that? I, I love to think about it. They, they write the, the best songs about this. Sometimes we sing them at, at, at Christmas. You, you remember this? This is a Christmas song, but if we sing it at Christmas, but it's really a millennium song. It's really a reign of Christ. He, do you recognize this? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare room in heaven and nature sing. It's a millennium song. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat this sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow and thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. It's a millennium song, you get it? He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. It's a millennium song. When I was in school, I loved music class. It's like it wasn't even a class. It was so much fun. It's like gym. Why do you get credit for gym or music? They're just fun, right? And the teacher introduced a song full of gorgeous poetry. Do you remember this song? Did they teach you this song when you were little? It's called America the Beautiful. It's a beautiful song. It's all full of idealism and poetry. I remember as a child thinking, oh my goodness, what beautiful poems from sea to shining sea. Thine alabaster cities gleam undimmed by human tears. I remember as a boy going, wow, whoever, whoever visited a city that gleams like alabaster 
and it's never dimmed by human tears. You've never seen a city like that, neither have I, but one day every city in the world that's ruled by Jesus will be like that alabaster city that gleams undimmed by human tears. That's what we have to look forward to. Imagine a thousand years to explore the earth in peace. Are you like I am? You, you look like it. You're getting older and you're running out of time. You feeling it? Getting older, running out of time. Can you guys hear me? You want me to talk louder? Yeah. The ears don't work like they used to. The eyes, the knees don't work like they used to. There's this guy I know. His name is Keith Drury. He's from Indiana Wesleyan. He, he was a teacher there, and I love to follow his writing because every time he had a break from school, he did some adventure somewhere. Pacific Coast Trail, Appalachian Trail, section hikes up the Appalachian Trail, motor scooter down the Blue Ridge Parkway, canoe down the Colorado. Just every time he took a break, I used to think to myself, I got to do that stuff. I got to go where he went. I got to hike where he hiked. Now I look at that and I think, it tires me out to read about that. I could never do that. One day it hit me, I will never in this human body that I have right now in its unresurrected version of this body is having trouble getting to the bathroom at night, let alone hiking the Appalachian Trail. Too much information. I'm sorry about that. Sorry. I'm serious though, but I think, what in the world? And then it hits me, wait, 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 wait. We're not done. That's one of the reasons why God says, hey, before I'm done with this earth and I refine it with fire and we go into the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and the eternal state, let me show you what I had originally had in mind for this earth. And let, I want you to love it and I want you to experience it. I want you to see all the Kentucky you want to see. I want you to hike all the Appalachian Trail you want to hike. I want you to paddle all the waters you wanted to paddle. I'm going to give you a thousand years to do it. Bill Blair was this precious retired man in a former church, and he was from the mountains of Kentucky. You could hear it in his voice. I went over to visit his home. He was a fastidious man. Everything he had was very neat, well cared for. He's just a very neat guy. Bill Blair was his name. And he's a, he's a quiet man. He invited me over. He says, if you come over and visit my house, I'll have my wife make you strawberry pie. Being a pastor is hard work, people. But you, sometimes you just have to do what God has called you to do. So I went over to his house, and I ate his wife's strawberry pie because, you know, it was the right thing to do. And, and it was good. And coffee. And would you like some more, Pastor? Oh, sure. I would. And then he and I walked outside. He showed me his garden. And he, I said, I love to hear you talk because I can hear the mountains in your voice. And he goes, oh. I go, did you ever, like, wish you could go back? Ask people from the mountains that. Did you ever wish you could go back? He, he said, like a lot of people say, I, I used to a lot. He said, I worked in a factory. And he said, whenever I would get a break, I would go out and stand on the loading dock so I'd get some fresh air. He said, there was a train out there that would go by, and it said, uh, Kentucky Northern Railroad. He said, every time I saw that train, I imagined what it would be like just to be able to go back and live in the mountains again. And, and when I was a young man, I used to say, I'm going to do that. But then we had kids, and then they got married, and then we had grandkids, and now my wife won't let me move. And he said, and I don't want to, because all the kids and the grandkids live here. So he said, I guess I'll 
I guess I'll never go back. And then I said, well, Bill, have you read this book? Because there's a part toward the end that gets really good where Jesus comes back and he gets rid of the devil, throws him in hell. And he says, you have 1,000 years on this earth and I'm going to take the curse out of it. And you have 1,000 years. Maybe you could go back to Kentucky for a few of those years. I don't know how that's going to work, but I, I would like, I would, a, there's a girl I'd like to hang out with that I'd like to go to Kentucky with. What a, what a beautiful thing to think that the things your heart longs to explore in this earth, maybe someday, God will let you do that. But you know, that's not all. A friend of mine came into my study this morning and he said, I think he said something like last night or we, we got to sit around the fire or we got to sit around the talk. And you know, that's kind of, that would be kind of along with the book thing. That would probably be a love language to sit with people and have good food and just have, you know, meaningful conversation, listen and have them listen to me and I listen to them. You, you realize what this says here though. In the circle, in the circle will be the Savior himself. You talk about a person with grace on their lips, something to say. You talk about a person with a powerful ability to listen and love and care. The one we always sing about, the one we've always waited for, the one we've always imagined, the one we haven't physically met, but someday we will, will be with us on earth for 1,000 years. You say, well, I'm going through some hard stuff. Okay, okay, okay. I know. I mean, I, I'm sure I can't appreciate all that you're going through. But somebody wrote a little song, and it went like this, and maybe we should just, like, we can pray this over you. It, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Amen.